Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best-selling book Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This is the Science Podcast for July 29th, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week we talk about the most interesting news and research from science and the sister journals. Up first, our intern, Kafia Chowdhury. She's going to talk with contributing correspondent, Rich Stone, about plans to launch an interstellar probe, which would leave the solar system and venture out into the space between the stars. Up next, researcher Miriam Valero talks with me about tiny crustaceans that appear to be pollinating a red algae. This is a very unexpected interaction in a marine setting. Finally, we have the latest installment of our series of book interviews on science, food, and agriculture. This time, host Angela Saini talks with biochemist T. Colin Campbell about his book, The Future of Nutrition. After visiting the outer planets in the 1980s, the twin Voyager spacecraft left the solar system about a decade ago and are still moving away from us. The data that they have sent back have raised just as many questions as they answered about the edge of the heliosphere, the boundary between the solar system and interstellar space. I'm Kafia Chattery, and joining me is contributing correspondent Rich Stone. He's here to discuss proposals to send a modern spacecraft to interstellar space, a mission that could still be going on a century from now. Hi, Rich. Hi there. What do we want to know about the heliosphere and interstellar space? What are some gaps we have in our knowledge? The Voyager probes have given us some insights into the edge of the heliosphere, but there are some basic things we don't know at all. We don't even know what shape the heliosphere is. Now, the heliosphere is this protective bubble that the solar wind actually propels out into space. It encompasses all the planets all the way out past Pluto. It's thanks to the heliosphere that life on Earth exists. Without it, we'd be exposed to intergalactic cosmic rays. That would be a very, very bad thing for life on Earth. How much of this knowledge was attained through Voyager? There's been some data from Voyager. Now, Voyager probes were not designed to explore interstellar space. They were designed for the outer planets. So their instrumentation was primarily looking toward Earth and toward the planets. They are using 1970s technology as well. The instrumentation was state-of-the-art at the time, but the data that Voyager is able to collect and transmit back is pretty sparse. Now, we've learned other things 
about interstellar space and the boundary of the heliosphere from other probes, such as the Cassini mission to Saturn, and some dedicated missions, spacecraft that look out toward the edge of the solar system. But right now, I have to say the data are scarce enough that there's a lot of debates going on about what interstellar space and the boundary there looks like. We've learned a surprising amount about the heliosphere from Voyager, and it was never intended for that purpose. So how reliable is the information and the data that we've gotten so far? Well, the data are generally speaking reliable, but it's not telling us enough to settle some very basic questions. Take, for example, when Voyager 1 crossed what's called the termination shock about 15 years or so ago. The termination shock is where the solar wind should slow dramatically from supersonic to subsonic speeds. First of all, when Voyager 1 crossed the termination shock, the solar wind did not slacken nearly as much as people expected. So they couldn't explain that with the physical models at that time. The other curious thing was when Voyager 2 crossed the termination shock, it crossed at a much closer distance to Earth, 10 astronomical units closer, 10 times the distance between Earth and the Sun. So it was much, much closer than scientists anticipated. And that asymmetry in the crossing point really left a lot of questions. So is that why there's a lot of debate over whether the Voyager probes have reached interstellar space? That's part of it. After they crossed the termination shock, they entered what's called the heliosheath, which is the very edge of the heliosphere. And this is where the solar wind starts to really slow down. And eventually it just peters out altogether at what's called the heliopause. So the heliopause is where the probes enter interstellar space. Now, when the Voyager team announced that the probes had entered the heliopause, first Voyager 1 10 years ago or so, they based that on the fact that the particle counts on the spacecraft were consistent with what they would expect to see, this large flux of extragalactic cosmic rays, which are characteristic of the interstellar medium. That seemed to work out according to what they expected. But what they also expected was you would see a change in the magnetic field direction. So the magnetic field in the heliosphere spirals with the sun's orbit. It kind of wraps around because of the rotation of the sun. Whereas when you cross into the interstellar medium, you should see a sharp change in direction of the magnetic field to the interstellar magnetic field. The probes did not see that. And that led some physicists to propose that they've actually not reached interstellar space at all. With the Voyager probes, it was not built for understanding interstellar space. So how would something like an interstellar probe or IP fix some of the issues that Voyager ran into? This has gained momentum, the idea of an interstellar probe, in part because of the Voyager data and trying to interpret what the Voyager probes have seen. So if you send a dedicated spacecraft into interstellar space with modern instrumentation to look at the plasma environment, to measure the magnetic fields, to look at a variety of particles, including dust, the Voyager probes don't have any dust detectors at all, you could get a much clearer picture of both the boundary of our heliosphere 
and the interstellar medium. This idea of sending an interstellar probe has been around for a while. I think we should mention that Ralph McNutt, a solar space physicist at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory, has been leading the charge, essentially, on developing a proposal for interstellar mission. It's uh, something he's been fascinated with since childhood. In fact, he created a science fair project that imagined an interstellar spacecraft mission, even made a cardboard and balsa wood model of, of the interstellar spacecraft. And so it's something he's been interested in for 50 years now. And he's really led the effort to scope out what a mission would look like, how much it would cost to send a probe into interstellar space, how to get it out there at a speed faster than the Voyager probe so you wouldn't have to wait too long to get out to interstellar space. It's a mission that wouldn't be studying the outer planets with the hope of getting out to interstellar space, but rather vice versa, going out to interstellar space and maybe able to capture some other data on that voyage. So the dedicated mission is, is in the concept design study phase now, and that's going to be reviewed by a National Academies panel, which in a couple of years will decide whether the community thinks it's worth the investment for the science that the mission could produce. And they would make a recommendation after which NASA, the space agency, would decide whether it wants to proceed with the mission. If all that goes well, the first launch, ideal launch window, would be in 2036. So why this mission and not something more pressing? The mission really is a long shot in the sense that it's not certain that the review committee, the Academy's review committee, will support it. It's up against cheaper missions that are meant to look at the space weather question, like the impact of solar flares and coronal mass ejections on Earth and satellites, power grids, and so forth. So this is all like solar space physics, which the IP is considered through that lens. So it's competing against projects that have a real kind of practical consequence for life on Earth. That said, there's never been a dedicated interstellar mission. There are these really intriguing questions about what the heliosphere boundary looks like and what interstellar space looks like. So as a curiosity-driven mission, it certainly is quite, quite attractive. And we'll see whether the decadal committee of the Academy backs it on, on those grounds. One other facet I would mention is that our solar system, as it zips through space, travels through gas clouds, humongous clouds in our galaxy, cold and dense clouds, mostly of hydrogen. We've been in the same cloud for the past 60,000 years. That affects the heliosphere. Our solar system sometime in the coming centuries, not very long from now, geologically speaking, our solar system has been moved into the next cloud, and we really don't know what we're going to encounter. If it's denser than the current cloud, it could compress the heliosphere. And depending on how far it compresses the heliosphere, that could have consequences for life on Earth. So being able to get a probe out there to study not just the local interstellar medium, but these larger clouds that we're traveling through actually does have kind of a long-term impact for society, for life on Earth. So is there, there is that angle to the mission as well. 
How would the heliosphere being compressed be dangerous for Earth? That's certainly a concern if the heliosphere is compressed to within Earth's orbit. That apparently has happened in the past between two and three million years ago. That could have devastating consequences for, for life on Earth. So yes, it's not something we immediately have to worry about, but um, it's something that we have to try to forecast. Do we know if anything will change when we leave the LIC? We don't know at all what's um, awaiting us. Uh, that's one thing the scientists have pointed out who I talked to for the story. They say there's just not enough known about the clouds, these vast, dense clouds that our solar system travels through to know exactly what the particle density of the next cloud might be. Certainly in the past, our solar system has moved through denser clouds, and that has compressed the heliosphere. So that is something that will eventually happen again to our solar system, but we don't know whether it's going to happen with the next cloud that we move into. Ralph McNutt's probe isn't the only one in the works. What else are people trying? Well, the team in China is working on their own design of an interstellar mission called Interstellar Express. It's a similar sort of probe. One would go out in a comparable direction as the U.S. mission toward what's called the nose of the heliosphere, so the prevailing direction of the solar wind. China would plan to launch a second probe in the opposite direction toward the tail of the heliosphere. All three probes would provide different vantage points when they reach interstellar space and, for that reason, give a more kind of comprehensive and more convincing view of the shape of the heliosphere and the properties of the interstellar medium at the three points that the probes are traveling in. After all, this is a century-long project, so where do you think this conversation will be decades from now? Yeah, so the teams involved in Interstellar Probe, Interstellar Express, realize that if their missions get off the ground out uh, on their journey toward interstellar space, that this is a multi-generational effort. So it's going to take about 30 years for Interstellar Probe after launch to make it out to the interstellar medium. So the project leaders today aren't necessarily going to be the project leaders when the probe arrives in interstellar space. And as the probes move deeper into interstellar space, there will be yet another generation of scientists managing this program. So this is really unprecedented to plan for a multi-generational mission like this. Certainly Voyager has been amazing and that it's lasted this long 44 years plus that the Voyager probes have been going, but nobody expected them to last this long. So this will be the first time that mission managers would plan to kind of have a handoff to the next generation. Thanks so much for your time, Rich. You're welcome. Rich Stone is a contributing correspondent for science. You can find a link to the story at science.org slash podcast. Don't touch that dial. Next, we have researcher Miriam Valero. We're going to talk about newly observed pollinators of the sea, little isopods helping seaweed with fertilization. Researchers at Queen's University Belfast translate research into action and make sense of a rapidly changing world. They keep up with technological, societal, and economic advances and drive change through collaboration and real-world partnerships. 
Their research leads to critical breakthroughs in areas such as green technology, food and agricultural sustainability, peace building, and healthcare. Queen's University Belfast's network of international researchers has a reputation for global excellence. Over 99% of their research was assessed as world-leading or internationally excellent in REF 2021. The impact of this research is felt around the world. Visit qub.ac.uk to find out how Queen's University Belfast is bringing research to reality. We all know about the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees. More scientifically, important pollinators like bees help along some plants looking to get lucky with other plants. But what other situation can you think of where an animal has to intervene in the reproduction of a species? Is this something that only plants are doing? It was long thought that, yeah, it was just for plants. Nobody else needed to use animals to help them make babies. But this week in science, Miriam Valero and colleagues published an observation of an animal helping along fertilization in an algae species. Miriam Valero is here to talk about this finding. Hi, Miriam. Hi. Okay, so this has actually been seen in a marine seagrass, but this study that we're going to talk about today is focusing on a seaweed. Why is seeing a pollinator for seaweed so different? You can understand that the same mode of pollinization exists in seagrasses because the seagrasses are plants that are coming back from land to the sea. While in the seaweed, it means that it appears in the sea. And this is the big question because it was supposed that pollination appears when the plants colonize the land by showing that it occurs in the sea. Then it asks the question, was it there before the plants leave the sea to colonize the land? So did pollinators come before plants even? So this is the, the big question. What about the seaweed that you looked at? How did you pick the species to investigate this question? Okay, so we are working in red seaweed. So in the red seaweed, most of the individuals in most of the species, male and female are different. You don't have the same reproductive organ, male and female organ, on the same individual. So you have the gametes that encounter together from two different individuals. And what's happened is that the male gametes are not flagellated and the fertilization occurs on the female plant. The male gamete doesn't have any ability to move around. Yes. Okay. And it has to still somehow make its way over to the female individual. Yeah. And it is a, really a question that has been asked since a long time. And there were several um, hypotheses about that. And we follow since a very long time individuals in the field. And when we went in the within population, we always find the small crustacean isopod that was very frequently found within the, the plants. We asked the question, but why this crustacea is so frequent in this individual? And maybe this uh, crustacea can have a role in uh, the transportation of the male gamete between the male and the female plant. So you see these animals and these seaweeds always mixed out in the wild? You always see the isopods hanging out there? 
We see them really frequently, yes. You took this to the lab to kind of isolate this system and, and see how the pieces work or don't work together. If you put this red seaweed in a tank in the lab, can it reproduce without the isopods, without these little guys? Yes. The seaweed, it is the cryptogamous species, which means that the sexual organs are very, very difficult to see. This is one of the difficulties of the material. You can recognize the males only during the reproductive season. And when you take them back to the lab, and the female, you can only see them when they are fertilized, not when they are producing gametes, only after fertilization. So you can never identify a virgin female. So if you have to do crosses, for example, then it is quite difficult because <laughs> you need a virgin female and a male. This sounds really hard. <laughs> yes. So what happens is that you have to take the female plant to cultivate them in the lab. So you, you recognize the female when they are fertilizing the field, you go back to the lab, and then you make them grow for several months in order that they produce new reproductive structure that you don't see, but you suppose that they are there <laughs> because the reproductive structure appears as the, the front or the talus of the alga grow. As the alga grow, it produces new uh, material that will uh, bear this reproductive organ. So you have to cultivate the alga for several months, separated, of course, you cultivate each individual separately. And then you have some uh, female plant that you can cross after that with the male. So this is just to show you the difficulties to have the material ready for crosses. Right. And then we have succeed to do crosses in the lab without the animals. We are making much water movement within the, the aquarium. And in that case, we were able to make crosses. So the baseline is if you have moving water, if you have a current in there and you have male and female algae, then you know. It is possible to produce fertilization. But do animals make it better, right? But what we show in the experiment we made, we add male and female plant together without any water movement. And we have male and female together with Idotea. Idotea is the name of the crustacea. And what we found is that, in fact, there were 20 times more fertilization with the animal than without the animal. So this can be explained by the fact that either it is the water movement that, that was created by the animals, or the fact that the animals was carrying the male gamete. Then we made another experiment in which we put only the female in the aquarium, but before we take the, the animals that we put with some mates, and then we only take the animals that were pre-incubated with males, and we put these animals in an aquarium. We found that there were fertilization that occurred when there were only the animals with the female, which proved that it was really the animals that carry the male gamete to the female. I did see there are some images and some videos with this paper where you were able to visualize the gametes being carried on the ice pods. Yes. Using a confocal microscopy, we look if there were male gametes on the animals. We were able to, to see 
there were megamets on the body of the animals, but mainly located on the, the leg. So the animal really walk on the algae, and by walking on the algae, he fertilized the female plants. How likely do you think that this happens in the wild? We saw a lot of animals at certain seasons, so probably it is important. And it is even more important at a low tide when the, the water is very calm. What do the isopods get out of this? Like, why are they walking all over the seaweed? The isopod is not eating this red algae, but they are eating the epiphyte algae that are growing at the surface of the red algae. So for the isopod, it is a source of food. And for the algae, it cleans the surface of the algae, so the algae is growing better, faster. The other thing uh, we suppose, it is something that we really realized when we were in the field, the isopods are really, uh, even if you look, sometimes you can't see them because they just appear like a branching of, the, of an algae. They have the same color, they have the same shape of this branching. And then we suppose that this is a system when they, they are even from the predators. Oh, so there's a lot going on in this relationship. Then it opens a lot of questions and new experiments in order to really uh, explore more in detail this mutualistic relationship. Going back to what we were talking about at the beginning, this suggests that pollination was happening before plants left the ocean and colonized the land? Yes, but we cannot be 100% sure because the origin of the red algae is uh, about 800 million years ago. And the origin of the animals is about 650 years ago. Million years ago. So it means that uh, the, probably there were another system of pollinization since the animals arrived afterwards. But when you look at the origin of the animals, it really predates the migration of, of the plant to the land. So it is possible that this animal seaweed interaction for fertilization occurs before the plant migrate to the land. So the red algae is very old. The isopod is younger, but plants, they go into the land even later than the appearance of the isopod. So this timeline suggests that this pollination scenario had happened before plants went to land. Yeah. So for the moment, we cannot really prove it, but it really asks this question. These red algae that you study, where do they live in the world? This uh, species of red algae is living uh, around the European coast, from uh, Morocco to Sweden. It is also found in uh, South Africa and in Argentina. It is uh, living in rock pool in the intertidal part of the shore. So it is subjected to very different conditions between the high tide and the low tide. And it can be exposed to very high temperature during the low tide. It is a species that is adapted to this kind of changing environment and from the evolutionary history of the red algae, in fact, they, they are supposed to have evolved from the tropical area, so they can support quite a high temperature. But um, the results about this interaction with the animals, I think, is another proof that in order to understand biodiversity, the interaction are the main cue and 
if we show, like in the plant, that there is a, a very important relationship between animals and seaweed, then this equilibrium has to be maintained. And uh, then it is not only the algae that have to survive for the change in climate, but the animals that are involved in the relationship has to be still there in the population as well. I like the fact that biodiversity implies a lot of interaction between species and that looking at only one species is not sufficient to explain how biodiversity is working and is maintained. Thank you so much, Miriam. Thank you. Miriam Valero is a population geneticist and senior researcher at the Evolutionary Biology and Ecology of Algae Research Department at CNRS at Sabon University and in partnership with two Chilean institutions. You can read the paper we talked about and a related commentary piece this week in Science. Stay tuned for the next in our series on books, Exploring the Science of Food and Agriculture. This month, host Angela Saini talks with biochemist T. Colin Campbell about his book, The Future of Nutrition. Hello, I'm Angela Saini, science journalist, author, and the host of this audio series in which I interview the writers of influential books on food and agriculture. We've reached episode three, and this month I have the company of T. Colin Campbell, a professor emeritus of nutritional biochemistry at Cornell University and best-selling writer, most famous for The China Study, first published in 2005. This book took decades of research into nutrition and made what was at the time the fairly controversial case for a whole food plant-based diet with no animal protein. Campbell lives by his advice. He's followed a plant-based diet now for more than 30 years. In his latest book, The Future of Nutrition, he takes on the scientific establishment and medical community, which he says have for too long neglected the role of diet in preventing fatal illnesses. Not just heart disease, but even conditions like cancer. Colin, let's start at the beginning. You were raised on a dairy farm in the United States. Can you tell me a bit about that and how it informed your later work? It's true. I was raised on a dairy farm. My father is from a line of farmers in our family. That's all I knew. Nothing more to say. I mean, I milked cows from the time I was very young, working in the fields and so forth and so on, farmers do. That was my youth. After that, I eventually ended up in graduate school at Cornell University. And my research topic or dissertation for my PhD was focused on the idea that we should consume more animal protein. That was consistent with my background. I, that's what I did. I was working on that problem. And it wasn't until later when I had my first faculty position shortly thereafter that I was put in charge of a program in the Philippines feeding malnourished children. And there, those of us in nutrition often believe that malnourished children probably were suffering primarily because they weren't getting enough protein, especially of the animal kind. That was my mission to make sure these kids had enough protein. But in reality, I was reminded by my physician colleagues and also by a report out of India, an animal study, there was a possibility that increased protein intake might increase cancer of all things, liver cancer. The few children that were getting enough protein in the Philippines seemed to be that they did have a higher risk. I couldn't be sure of that. But in any case, on that basis, not knowing the answer to that, that was the basis for my getting a 
pretty significant grant from the United States uh, National Institutes of Health to do research on a question, you know, is it true that animal protein increases cancer? First off, I learned, yes, it is true. Pretty remarkable. And we could actually, in those animal studies, turn cancer on and off simply by increasing or decreasing protein intake. I mean, it was really, really striking. I, I'm trying to convince myself, is this true or not true? After I saw that, the next question that came to mind was, this is for all of us in research, if you see some, something startling like that, how does it work? That must have been particularly strange for you as someone who'd grown up on a dairy farm. <laughs> yes, I was a hunter. I fished. I did all the things that farm boys do. So I had no disposition to come to this point of view at all. But it, this information presented itself. I started looking for the mechanism, and I found one. I kept doing it, and I saw 10 mechanisms in a series. These are biochemical mechanisms. 10 or more increased with increased protein intake, and that meant an increase in cancer growth. So I, I saw something about nutrition that was completely out of the territory of what, the way we think of nutrition. It wasn't about one nutrient out operating on one mechanism to affect one disease. Everything just happened in very responsive. And what I thought I saw at the time was something pretty remarkable. I thought this is nature at work. This is the way nature works. Very quickly, responsively, in reference to food. And so then I could ask questions like, does it apply to humans? And eventually I gathered information from a lot of other researchers showing that sure enough, if you look at the heart disease, breast cancer, urinary cancer, colon cancer, osteoporosis, chronic kidney disease. As soon as people start consuming animal protein, there's a straight line relationship, increasing the risk for all these diseases. And this was pretty controversial at the time because people, as you talk about at length in your book, there were a lot of people who didn't accept these kind of findings. What was that like? <laughs> well, I didn't either. So I kept at it. My friends and colleagues, on the other hand, though, warned me, don't go down that path because it's too widely accepted, too sensitive. But I had to keep going. And that's a whole story unto itself as well. And the pushback that I got from the community of scientists as well as others. Tell me a bit about that pushback. What form did it take? It started primarily after I had already been in the profession for about 15 years. I was on a National Academy of Science expert committee on diet, nutrition, cancer. It was a very prominent committee. First time that this National Academy had chosen to study that question, I was only one of 13 members. The others were oncologists and people like that. I raised the question about this animal protein thing. They weren't particularly fond of the idea of including information like that in the book. And finally, they told me, you draft the chapter. So I did. <laughs> and they approved it. And then I had the responsibility thereafter to testify in behalf of the committee to congressional hearings. Of course, then I also was invited to do other public things, like being on public radio and things like that. And I would end up talking about my own views, my own research to some extent. That caused me a lot of difficulty. In fact, a proposal was made to expel me from my professional society, and a hearing was held in Washington. This was at the time I had just been nominated to be president of the society. Very odd. But there were some very strong sentiment in the nutritional science community against what I was saying. The pushback was severe. It continued for the next 40 years in various ways. But I couldn't give up. With the animal data in hand, the experimental animal data in hand, I had a chance to work in China. This is when the United States and China were first beginning to talk to each other, if you will. 
And the first Chinese delegation that came to the United States, they had a very famous scientist with them. His grandfather had been a compatriot of Sun Yat-sen, who overthrew through the Chinese dynasty at the time in 1912. But in any case, this Dr. Chen was there. He wanted to come and work with me if that was possible. I said, yes, of course. He worked in my lab for about eight years, did some research, and we learned about the fact that his government had just completed an amazing survey of how much cancer existed across China in 2,500 counties. And what we saw in that atlas was that cancer was very high in some places and much lower in other places, the different kinds of cancers. But in any case, it was a perfect setting to go and have a look to see why is cancer high here and low there and so forth. So we came out with the evidence. I got a lot more pushback too, because what we were learning there was that as soon as people start consuming some animal protein, small amounts, I might add, in rural China, they weren't consuming animal protein like we do. But as soon as they started consuming reasonably small amounts of animal protein, their blood cholesterol levels increased significantly. That's an indicator of heart disease, if you will. It's an indicator of other kinds of Western diseases, cancer, heart disease, and so forth. And how well accepted these findings that you did a number of years ago now, how well accepted are they now? It's generally not accepted by, obviously, the corporate world, let's face it. It's just simply not accepted. And there's two major industries that are affected by it. Now, one industry is characterized by agriculture, basically livestock-based in large measure. They're not particularly happy with this. And in fact, they've been very unhappy with me. But I am a bit cynical, and I have to be candid about this comment I'm going to make. Namely, in our government, we have a, a department of the government that is called the Department of Agriculture. They're the ones that write dietary guidelines and things like that. They're beholden to the animal industry. They're not happy. So the second agency, the Department of Health and Human Services, they're responsible for Western medicine, particularly focused on the use of drugs. But as we increase uh, diseases on the one hand, on the other hand, we've got another industry, the pharmaceutical industry, very powerful. I mean, a lot of your book is an indictment of modern day medicine and science, especially in the United States, with its focus, as you say, on pharmaceuticals and surgery rather than on nutrition. And there is a great deal of frustration that comes through in your writing. You use the word dogma to describe the kind of focus on certain things and not others. What do you see as the fundamental failures here? Basically, in science, especially in medical sciences, we tend to focus on one item at a time, one nutrient. What does that do? How much should we consume? What's the structure? But in any case, we focus on one nutrient operating through one mechanism to affect one disease. So we tend to think it's this very reductionist, microscopic way on things. And that creates an enormous opportunity for confusion. It can even then be very difficult as an everyday person to know what we should be eating, what is good for us. And sometimes the advice seems so contradictory. It's always shifting. And of course, there are also many other factors that affect our dietary choices, personal reasons, economic reasons, cultural reasons that we eat the foods that we do. So how do we account for all of this? Is there an easy answer here? What, what is your advice? I only have two recommendations. In both cases, recognize the biological complexity, but at the same time, they're very practical for anyone from any persuasion. Namely, eat plants, number one. Number two, eat them as much as possible in the whole food form. And now one more thing. That same model is useful for controlling the environmental crises that we seem to have. Just eat the right food. 
people want quick answers, this, that, and everything else, but actually just eat plants. Don't eat animals. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Colin Campbell. That's a very bold, <laughs> radical vision for the future. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. And that's it for this segment. I'm Angela Saini, and next month I'll be speaking to Nicholas Sullivan, author of The Blue Revolution. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at science.org slash podcast, or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi and Kafia Chowdhury, with production help from Podigy, Kevin McLean, and Megan Cantwell. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.